Well, today it's my pleasure to introduce somebody who's influenced my thinking as much as it, maybe more than anyone, Dan Rothstein. Dan is the co-director of the Right Question Institute. Dan is the co-author of a book with Lou Santana on if you have to make just one change, teach students to ask their own questions. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Alan. Anytime there's a chance for a conversation with you about learning, I'm there. Yeah, I am so pumped up about this conversation. Um, <laughs> so for folks who don't know, I, I know you've been asked this question a million times. I love how you started. If, if you don't mind a quick share of what led you uh, to the Right Question Institute development. Absolutely. Sure. How could I mind? It's the source of, of uh, all of our work. Uh, Lou Santana uh, and several other people and I were working in the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts on a dropout prevention program. And our work was working with parents uh, to try to get parents, primarily low-income Latino parents, um, also a large number of low-income white parents, involved in their children's education. And uh, we, you know, we're trying different things, and, and in conversations with, with the parents, we heard, uh, well, we don't want to really be involved, and we don't even go to the schools because we're not even sure what questions to ask. We don't even know what questions to ask. So we were, you know, we were very smart. You know, we could, we could solve that problem. We heard that one or 2,000 times, finally figured out that it was a problem. And we thought, all right, well, we'll just give you a list of questions. So the list of questions one week might have been about homework issues, but then we noticed people came back and the issue the next week was about discipline policies and they needed another set of questions. And what we realized was that we were actually having the opposite effect of what we wanted to accomplish, is that we were creating greater dependency on us to be coming up with questions to give them to ask. So they named a problem that uh, turns out to be a really fundamental problem, a major obstacle to people participating, to having a voice, to being able to be effective advocates for their children. Uh, and then as we began to work with it, we realized that, well, there's, there's a larger challenge here. Um, how do people really learn to ask their own questions? And that's really started us off on what's been a 30-year journey in which we keep on learning about how significant the skill of question formulation um, is for, for all people, people with limited education, people with, with extensive education. So I'm fascinated that uh, you discover the dependency. That, that's the part that, that really intrigues me, that you almost have to get out of the way, don't you, to empower right. people right. to take more responsibility for solving their own problems. Hence, one day a teacher told you, hey, <laughs> what do you got for kids? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really interesting uh, uh, story that we, we um, this are kind of seeing, right now the question formulation technique, which I'll give you a quick overview of in, in a minute, is now in more than a million classrooms around the world. And it's, it's really just extraordinary. And it's not because of any smart strategic plan that we came up with. It's really because teachers began to get a sense that, huh, this thing that I've heard about 
this could really be relevant for my students, my classroom. Um, and we had, you know, barely, um, probably barely a handful of teachers around the country who were using the question formulation technique in their classroom. Uh, and then we had the opportunity to write um, our book for Harvard Education Press and had to cobble together the stories in order to illustrate how it was used in the classrooms. But with barely a handful, we were, we were kind of you know, challenged by doing that. And one, one of the handful actually is my daughter, Ariella, who's a high school teacher, and she was in her first year of teaching and using the question formulation technique. And I thought, well, maybe that kind of, um, you know, uh, invalidates the uh, the pool here if one of them is is my daughter and somebody else once told me well if your own daughter uses it maybe that actually uh, gives greater validation to it <laughs> so it <laughs> so it it turns out that uh, we were very fortunate we were able to pull the stories together had really remarkable stories there's one teacher in the Boston public schools a link Chesnakis who used it in a summer program for students who were really struggling um, and were being were at risk of being held back in ninth grade. And at the end of the uh, summer, when she had taught them to use the question formulation technique, she asked them, how does it make you feel? And one of her students said, it makes me feel smart because I'm asking my own questions and I'm getting my own answers. Yes. And smart is probably not an adjective that he would have used to describe himself in an academic setting before. So yeah. th that was the kind of inspiration that we were we were getting from teachers. There was one one teacher in New York City, Laurie Gogren, who um, was a veteran teacher and had talked about how for years in her humanities classroom in, in a New York City high school, she had been scribbling in the margins all sorts of questions for students on their essays to try to get them to think about different things. And when she learned to use the question formulation technique, it was a little bit of a, you know, your hand going to your forehead of like, well, of course, wouldn't it be better if they were able to look at what they wrote and ask their own questions about how to improve it? So it was that kind of discovery that was taking place um, from, from the teachers with whom we were learning um, that we were able to share in the book. And since then, uh, it has really taken off. And I think that the reason it has taken off is because even though it took us a good 10 years to figure out how do you teach the skill in the simplest way possible, um, because remember, our target population initially was people with very limited education. And um, so what we had to do is how do you basically unpack what turns out to be maybe one of the most sophisticated thinking, reasoning, creative abilities one could have and make it accessible for all people. So it took us a while, but once we got to it and figured it out, I think that's the explanation of why teachers have just run with it all over the world. And it's because it boils down to a few simple steps in the question formulation technique. You produce your own questions, you work with and improve your own questions, practice changing closed-ended questions into open-ended ones, open-ended ones into closed-ended ones. You prioritize your questions, you look at your list of questions, prioritize them. You think about your next steps, how you're gonna be using the questions, you strategize about how you're using the questions. And the final step is you reflect on what did you learn by quote-unquote just asking your own questions. You know, I, I, uh, I have a student quote, too, 
Mm-hmm. I love your quote that the kid feels smart. I had a student tell me something I've never heard after uh, giving a workshop with a teacher with kids. This kid was experiencing it, going through the process, as you just described. And at the end, he's leaving, and we were, you know, just chatting. And the kid says, how come every teacher doesn't do this with us? This would change everything. Oh, my goodness. I've never had a kid say that. Wow. And, uh, but he felt so empowered oh by the process goodness. you develop that oh. he just thought, oh. you know, he, if he was a lawyer, <laughs> he, he would have said, this is malpractice if you don't do it. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alan, that's beautiful. Thank oh. you. I'm just oh, I'm smiling. sorry you were not here. there. It, it, it was oh. unbelievable. Um, oh. Um, Plus the look it, on his face and how serious yeah. he was and how he knew yeah. it would it would work in other classrooms. Yeah. That uh, that is that is so 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 beautiful. I you know it reminds me of we did work when we were actually developing more of an application of the question formulation technique for the classroom. Mm-hmm. Because remember we we our work actually started in the use of this the teaching of the skill in environments outside the classroom, parents around their children's education, patients around their healthcare, um, residents of a, you know, of a neighborhood around kind of neighborhood issues. Uh, there was a wide range of applications uh, of it. But when we began to adapt it more for the classroom, we actually started off working with adult literacy programs. Mm-hmm. And, those, and those were very interesting because those were with people for whom school didn't work. People who really didn't get, they didn't, they were there for their GED or they were there for some more basic adult literacy. And one of the, one of the learners, the adult learners in, in the program said something that reminds me of what you heard from the student. And she said, um, after she learned this, she, she said, why didn't we learn this in high school? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the kind of, that when you hear that type of insight and perception from the students themselves, yes. it's just really inspiring. I mean, that's the highest aha you can Yes, yes. This is yes. lifelong. Yeah. This is yeah. everywhere. It's yes. not this moment in time. Yes. This will yes. change my life. Yes, uh, yes. So, so nice work, Dan. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Alan, you know, it reminds me, you're, you know, you did an interview with Eric Mazur. Yeah. Um, he invited me to, to talk to, um, to present to his learning incubator and faculty at Harvard. Um, and um, it was really interesting because the experience, I took them through the exact same question formulation technique that we would walk parents through in, in a neighborhood, through uh, residents of a public housing project, uh, participants in an adult literacy program. The exact same process I took them through around an authentic problem that was relevant to their their situation, to students uh, learning in, in a university classroom. And at the end, uh, there's this fascinating exchange with Bharat Anand, who's the vice provost for teaching and learning at Harvard, and who teaches at the Harvard Business School. And he said, he told us at, at one point that, uh, that um, Harvard Business School students come back and when they're asked about what is the most important thing they learned there, they said, well, it was really what we learned about asking questions. And how did they learn it? Well, they learned it from teachers who basically were asking them questions all the time. And for those who were successful, they were able to absorb that and then carry that forward. And he said, 
But what's different here about what you're doing is you're actually teaching the skill so that students can learn it themselves, that it can become part of what they really what they learn. And it doesn't depend upon one professor having to model it for them over and over and over again. Yes. Well, there's, there's, there's a, a change in direction here. I, uh, one of the other people I've interviewed is a guy named Stephen Wolfram. And Stephen mm -hmm. Wolfram has invented this amazing search tool. It's a computational thinking search engine called Wolfram Alpha. Right. And at the end of the day with Stephen, I just, my mind was blown about what you can discover on the web. So I asked him, what's the most important skill? Given where, where search technology uh -huh. is going uh -huh. in the future, he, right. has a, he has a really good crystal ball. And he said, uh, the answers are on the web. What's not on the web are the questions. Uh -huh. And we, whoever gets to ask the most interesting questions will be ahead of those who cannot. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that. I bought yeah. that. That more and more and more, if you know how to search well, the, there are more answers on the internet than ever before, and it will only go up, not down. Right, right. So right. that brings me to the intersection of our work. Yes. Which is, I am convinced that your skill set really is a prerequisite of teaching students how to ask really interesting questions on the web, which we call search. It's, yeah. it's how do you design a search? Right. Yep. So I, we've talked about this before. I wonder what your thinking is on using, using search tools and, and the, the place of the right question thinking that would help prepare kids to do much better searches than they currently are. This is, this is the world we live in now. This is, this is what we need to think about. Um, and um, in, you know, so, so before, before I forget, I just want, I want to mention a book that is relevant to what you just talked about. And it's written by a kind of interesting technology and business journalist, Clive Thompson. Um, and it's called Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better. And it's a, it's a fascinating book where he, where he talks about how um, from the beginning, there's been resistance to new technology and fears of what it might do to people's brains. Fears of Socrates was upset about students taking notes, that their minds would turn to mush because they weren't just memorizing what they were hearing, but rather they were taking notes. Uh, in the Middle Ages, some people posed the idea of putting an index in a book, of making it easier for people to find information. Um, so the fears of, of kind of now that you have all this power in your phone to get information um, more easily than ever before, what's that going to do to your mind? And Clive Thompson ends his, his entire book is, so what do you do um, when you're able to get information so easily? He says you need to think of harder questions. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, yeah. Yeah, we need to. We, we do. It's, yeah. it's, um, so what's interesting about your work, which I love about your work, is most kids will just type in their teacher's assignment right. title. Right, right. That's, that is the default for doing a search. Right. 
Yeah. G- give right. me a title. If the title is, you know, write a, write a paper on the Iranian hostage crisis, kids will write Iranian hostage crisis. Right, right. And right. the Iranians didn't call it the Iranian hostage crisis. You don't get <laughs> any Iranian sources. You, right. have to, you have to be quite sophisticated, in fact, to get primary source documents on something that is that popular and well-known. It's hard to do, actually. Right, right, right. Uh, and your process of going from open to closed. But I wonder if you could comment on that. My sense right. is, so that, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it's an interesting thing. Um, so, so remember what we're trying to do is to create the simplest possible model for getting better at asking your own questions. Not the most comprehensive, uh, not the most complicated, but what's the simplest method for getting to being able to ask better questions? And so out of the many, many different ways that you could categorize it, uh, probably the, the one most powerful shift that happens in determining where you go with your questions, what kind of information you get, is based on whether you ask an open-ended question or a closed-ended question. And in most educational settings, you will hear teachers sometimes be aghast at the idea that uh, you should be encouraging students to ask closed-ended questions. And our argument is we're not encouraging asking either open-ended or closed-ended questions. What we are encouraging is developing the ability to take an open-ended question, turn it into a series of closed-ended questions that help you unpack it, Mm. and take a closed-ended question that needs to be opened up for you to allow you to see something bigger. So it's that ability which is connected to what you just talked about, is that, and what Wolfram was, was talking about, is that this is this is this is what's there. The information is there, but you have to figure out how to get to it and how to get to it from different different angles. So so that is really that's a really is a fascinating discovery for us. And it turns out that, you know, once you've got that down and, you know, we've we've done workshops in all sorts of environments. I, I did a session at Google in, in the San Francisco office. And they had people, you know, know, um, uh, coming in from from Mountain View and kind of went through one step of the exercise with them on changing open to close and close to open. And they struggled with that. (laughs) It was just because it requires a certain kind of, well, wait, what do I do with this question? How do I how do I make it? You know, how do I how does it lead me? How can I shape what kind of information I'm getting from it? So that's a big one. Do you have a sense of levels of difficulty? Is it harder for kids to go from open to closed or closed to open? Hmm. 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 That's interesting to think about. Um, so they, they can, they can struggle with both. Um, they can struggle with both, um, but I I think in some ways uh, it's really interesting, and I, I hadn't thought about this until you just asked it in that way. Uh, you know, so much of of what 
um, teachers often talk about is getting students to ask higher order, more sophisticated questions, and of course they must be open-ended questions. And what we find is that that students can make a huge intellectual leap if they're able to ask a series of closed-ended questions that unpack an open-ended question. So what were the causes of the American Revolution? Well, you could, like, how do you begin to work on that? And so you, you need to kind of, you need to, you need to unpack that. And, uh, you know, even asking questions narrowly is, you know, uh, was, was, was the Boston Tea Party the cause of the American Revolution? Well, that leads you into to an area that you have to kind of get an answer to that. So you study, the, you know, the, the Tea Party and you look at what happened there. And, uh, you know, you look at did, did the Constitutional Convention caused the revolution. Well, then you have to look at, well, when did the Constitutional Convention happen? Well, it didn't happen until after the revolution. So, so, you, so people begin to take something that looks a little bit overwhelming and they begin to apply their mind to it, begin to break it down, and they discover that there's information that they need that they didn't have. So you couldn't possibly answer that open-ended question without a series of closed-ended questions to break it down further. To combine the American Revolution with the Iranian hostage crisis, what, do, what are the British saying? Mm-hmm. Right. Is the That's right. American That's version. right. That's, we, don't, yeah. we don't teach kids to yeah. think about different uh, perspectives right. of an event. We teach them what's our, what's our version of the truth. Right. And, and that, that's useful, right? You, you, know, <laughs> you know, we're trying to make everybody an American. But at some point, you want to teach people, I believe, that, that good education is to teach people that there may be different perspectives that even challenge one another on the same event. Well, that, that's, that's the way to get to new knowledge and new understanding. And if, if you think that that is something of value, then yes, you wanna develop that ability. If you have a preconceived notion that this is the only thing I want you to learn, then you're not really interested in developing that ability. Right, that's, no, that's But if right. you are. So, so we're doing really interesting work now with the Teaching with Primary Sources program at the Library of Congress. And I know you know Leanne Potter yes. uh, and, and their work. So it's just, it's fascinating to see um, working with, with teachers around how to use the primary sources, the, the extraordinary uh, treasure of primary sources that are there in the Library of Congress. And it really is about uh, presenting a primary source, having students look at it and being able to ask their own questions about it. And there are so many, so many ways that when you present something to them and you just let them at it, you let them go <laughs> and ask questions about it, they're going to be looking at the detail there that they may not have ever, that they may not ever notice if it's your questions guiding them on what to look at. And that's, that's really the big shift here. And it's really exciting to see what teachers are, are doing with the question formation technique in combination with the sources. And you know, one, one example of a primary source that, that I think that you would enjoy um, is a, a, um, a depiction of the caning of Sumner in the Senate in 1856 or 1857. Mm. Um, and where a Southern congressman came over to the Senate and literally took his cane and caned the Massachusetts Republican Senator, uh, Charles Sumner, who was an advocate for an abolitionist. Um, and, and 
the depiction shows the caning going on, and it shows a whole crowd of men in the background, all white men, um, obviously in the Senate at that time. And the students kind of go through a series. These are sixth grade students looking at this before they're about to begin a unit on the Civil War. So they, they, they kind of go through it. They look at it as, you know, why is this happening? You know, how can somebody do that? Where is this happening? That why didn't they call uh, 911? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then they get to the 20th question. And one student is looking at the men standing in the background. And this student asks, why are all those men smiling? Mm. So one of the, you know, one of the things that was really striking about the caning of Sumner was how how basically the Southern senators had surrounded them and just kind of allowed this to go on. Right. So, so when that student got to that 20th question and noticed that kind of detail that was deep in the background of where your eyes usually directly go to the caning itself, and you give them that opportunity to observe it and look at the questions they asked. So if you think about that as a microcosm of what, what is available on the web, is there so much available? How do you how do you get, equip students to bring their own eye and a critical eye to what they're seeing, and think about how powerful questions are for being able to ask about what you are seeing presented in front of you, rather than simply receiving it? What does it mean to ask questions about it? Well, my sense is the wonderful story you just told about that photograph is a teacher who knows how to get a prompt. I'm going to call it a prompt. Right. Yep, yep, yep. Who knows how to get a provocative photograph and give students the mental space right. to yes. keep thinking about it yes. and going yes. through your technique. Yes, yes. And not jumping in. Yes. Going back to your original yeah, you, Lawrence yeah, story. It. That is it. Is, is an art form. It's, it, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and a lot of it, in, well, my observation is a lot of it is about letting go of control. You're right. And I am convinced that letting go of control is one of the most difficult things any adult can do. Yeah. And yeah. It, it can even get in the way if you can't. But I just yeah. love what you, we have enough provocative material now. Right, right, in right. In every curriculum area. Right. That we could be doing that every day if we wanted to. So, so it's really interesting that you mentioned that, Alan, because um, I've had this rare opportunity to hear the thoughts of uh, educators who are fresh, uh, new to the question formulation technique, or or have used it but have not really kind of looked at what's behind it. And they've been participating in a course, uh, an online module that we run in conjunction with the Harvard Graduate School of Education on best practices in the question formulation technique. And there's, there's one part in which they actually look at what we call the four principles of facilitation of what, how best to facilitate the use of the QFT. And it ties directly to what you just said. Because the four principles are pretty simple. One is to monitor student adherence to the process. In other words, there's a, because the question formulation technique is a protocol. So you can't do reflection 
before you've, you've done prioritization. You can't do reflection and prioritization before you've actually produced the questions. So, so it's a protocol, there's a sequence, and you need to follow the sequence. So what you want to be doing is just monitoring that the students are going along in the process. Like that's, that's kind of your job. Um, and so most teachers will say, yeah, I, I get that, I can do that. But, but the next three principles are really difficult for them. The next one, the, the second one is do not give examples. And this is really hard for teachers who feel like, well, my job has always, I thought my job was to give them examples to show them what I want them to be doing. But of course, that leads to them taking what I gave as an example as being the only thing that they really should be thinking about and working on. So this is a major discovery and, and kind of, and so listening to, to teacher after teacher realize, oh my, that's a challenge for me because, but I see now that of course, when I give the example, it then really directs where they go with it. They're not going to do divergent thinking. They're going to basically follow my lead. And then the third principle is do not get pulled into group discussion. So teachers will say, oh, but I go around and the groups are working and there's something really interesting there and I, you know, want to jump in. But now that I think about it, as soon as I jump in, I'm really stopping their conversation and, and it all again gets directed to me and maybe they want confirmation that they're doing the right thing, that they're on track. So, so that's a challenge. And then the final principle is my job is to acknowledge all contributions equally. Because if somebody asks a question and I say to that student, oh, great question. And the next student asks a question and I don't really think it's a great question. I just go, uh-huh. Um, any other questions? I realize that that, que that student who just asked that question is never going to ask another question. Because I praised the previous question and I did not give praise to this person's question. And so we encourage people to provide a neutral response. Thank you. Thank you for your question. And then move on to others. So these simple things are connected to what you talked about, which is how do you give up controlling the thinking process, controlling the discussion, controlling how students assess their own contributions? Because you are doing, you are doing it unintentionally, but it is very much what you mentioned, which is it is a way of, of turning the power of the thinking process over to the students and you're facilitating that. You're not controlling it. There's a, another problem I've observed in my workshops um, where kids start asking really interesting questions. Your technique works. <laughs> and it works. And then kids come up with a, a problem definition mm. Mm. in the subject, mm. and the teacher can't answer it. Right, right. So you've got, if you lose control on the front end of kids defining the problem where, where I think this is going, defining the work they want to do and the inquiries they want to follow, you're, gonna, you're inevitably going to have some smart as you said, kids get smarter and they're going to come up with these problems. And then teachers are going to have to admit, I don't have, I don't have that knowledge. Right. That right. can be a very scary moment for teachers also. 
I, I think so. And I think that, um, you know, you've, you, you've asked me to think about, um, when, uh, like what happens for, uh, leaders or, uh, staff developers who want to introduce the QFT and might yeah, meet yeah. With initial resistance. So I think that this is a good point to discuss that because what you just named is there's, there's good reason for resistance. <laughs> um, there's, there's a real need to acknowledge that we're asking something here that can, on one level, seem very threatening and very frightening. Um, first of all, it's changing your practice. Uh, it does not mean using the question formulation technique for a specific purpose of designing a research project, of getting students interested in a subject, of doing a formative assessment, all sorts of ways that you could use it. It does not mean that you as a teacher will never, ever, ever again ask a question. <laughs> That's not, it's not, it's not saying that that is that you're throwing out everything you know and you will never be allowed to ask a question again. It means that you are using it deliberately for a specific teaching and learning goal mm -hmm. in addition to helping students acquire the skill of formulating questions. So students, so teachers need to be reassured of that. So, okay, yes, a change is being asked, but it doesn't mean it's a change in 90% of your practice. It's a change in 10% of your practice. So that's, you know, when you talk about are there tips for staff leaders and staff developers, it can be presented very simply as this is another tool in your toolbox and this is how you can use it. Um, now, that said, there'll still be resistance because this is new for teachers. Teachers have been trained in some ways to go against the facilitation principles that I just shared with you. So they've been encouraged, trained to ask questions to get students to do the, the think in new ways. They, even this, the, the Socratic method, and is, is very often it's the wisest person in the room asking questions of the less wise. Well, this kind of challenges that. This is how can I present a, a, a figure, a document, a prompt, a focus for students to be asking questions about, not for me to be leading them through the, the thinking process. And uh, so you can see that, that there's really good reasons why, why teachers could, could resist this. So what we do, and I think, um, you know, we really have great examples of this in the professional learning that, that is done with the question formulation technique, is that basically people learn to use it in the exact same way that they would use it in the classroom of the students. It's around an authentic problem. Uh, Malcolm Knowles, who developed the theory of learning for, for uh, andragogy, of working with adults, talked about how important authentic tasks are, authentic learning, which, by the way, you know, you, <laughs> you, you have... You have been arguing that for students forever. <laughs> that students need the opportunity to do authentic work, and 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 you have to realize, so like, wait a second, was was Noel saying that you're not allowed to work on an authentic task until you've reached a certain age? <laughs> um, and of course, he wasn't arguing that, but 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 implicit in that is that if that applies to adults, why would that not apply to students? And you know, you've been you've been modeling that and demonstrating that for 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 years. Um, so, so basically, when you if walking into a situation where teachers may not be familiar with the question formulation technique, may feel threatened by it, may feel that it could create some problems for them or requires that they change their practice, they need the opportunity to work on a problem, 
and work through the question formulation technique. And then at the end, name for themselves, what did they learn by going through this process? And how did they learn it? So by being able to name at the end, what did they learn? They can see that, oh, by going through this process of working with my own questions, I figured out something that I hadn't really understood before. And how did I learn it? I learned it by going through this process. Yeah, well done. So, Dan, what's next? I know you're always thinking about your, your work and how people respond. And what, what are your next steps? Um, well, that's something that's very much on our mind. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's, a, there's another book that I think is, it would be very interesting for, for your audience um, uh, by a neuroscientist at, at Columbia University, Stuart Feierstein. Um, and he, he actually, he wrote one book called Ignorance, colon, How It Drives Science. And his second book, he was so successful with ignorance. <laughs> the book was so successful. His second book was Failure, Why Science is So Successful. And wow, yeah. in, yeah, it, it's really great. And, and both those books, Stuart, Stuart makes, I've gotten to know him uh, because we were both we were back-to-back -back, uh, keynote presenters at a Harvard Medical School, Medical School Symposium on the Science of Learning. Yeah. And we thoroughly enjoyed hearing each other's presentations um, because in the, in the first one and in Ignorance, uh, uh, Stuart talks about how um, graduate students could come in to a uh, classroom and see a 1,400-page textbook on neuroscience and think, okay, that's all there is to know. Mm -hmm. And what he wanted them to understand is, no, that's simply all that we know. What we don't know is much greater. Right. And so he said, how do, you, how do you deal with that? And so he concludes his book by saying, well, you, you deal with that by we need to teach our students how to manage ignorance, how to think in questions. So it seems to me that that's exactly what you were doing, Alan, when you, you know, think about how do you really help students think about sources and how do they access sources and how do they use the web? It's basically, there's a lot out there. How do I manage what I don't know? How do I think in questions in order to break that down? So... So I think that Stuart uh, articulated something there that has stayed with us. And I think that it's, it's helped us clarify that what we are trying to do is to build this skill that is both a thinking skill in a learning environment. It's an advocacy skill as a parent advocating for a child, as a person kind of navigating different challenges in life. And it's a democratic skill as a citizen participating in a democracy. Um, mm -hmm. In an authoritarian society, uh, questions are not welcome. You can get into a lot of trouble for asking questions. A democratic society needs questions in order to thrive, in order to survive as a, as a democracy. So where we're going next is we're taking all that we are learning from, from people um, across many different fields on many different levels. 
And we're trying to tease out what we see as a question formulation theory of learning and democratic action. That there's something that changes when you have that ability to formulate your own questions. It changes you as a learner, and it changes you as a citizen. And that's that's where we're going. We're not we're not there yet, but that's what we're pulling out from our work. And part of it is is thanks to a beautiful um, statement by Septima Clark who we learned about after we had started our work, but she was one of the, the, the greatest educators of the 20th century. It's interesting, we show a photo of Septima Clark seated next to Rosa Parks, and, and we, show, we just show the picture and we say, the, the woman on the right is one of the most famous people of the 20th century, and that was Rosa Parks. The woman on the left is one of the greatest educators of the 20th century, and hardly anybody knows her name. And Septima Clark was a teacher in the Charleston, South Carolina school district, for 18 years and she was fired for being a member of a civil rights organization, being a member of the NAACP. And so she decided, she worked with other people and she created what she called citizenship schools where she taught basic adult literacy to African-American adults in her community, not only to help them uh, prevent uh, themselves from getting cheated out of wages, but also because she saw this as part of a larger movement, the civil rights movement, and how to build a more just democracy. And she said, we need to be taught to study, not just to believe, we need to be taught to inquire. And so she captured in some ways the, the, both the learning and the democratic spirit of what we're trying to do. And that's what we're trying to, to share. Well, we need you, Dan. Don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> Because what's at risk is losing democracy, right? It's yep. not, we're not talking about test scores or covering the curriculum. Right. You know, we're talking about something much bigger. And that right. is, you know, at a time of people in, living in a post-truth world, which is a fascinating research study in itself, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. increasingly believe in what they want to believe, your skill set of asking questions and continuously directing your own inquiry is ab absolutely essential. And so, so I'm just I'm just grateful I know you, Dan. <laughs> oh, Alan, <laughs> thank grateful. you. It's been it's it's been such a pleasure to get to know you and um, to see what your mind does with this deceptively simple idea of asking questions. It's been yeah. great. And you know that that your commentary about those really smart, highly school successful medical students, right? Who look at that 1400 page document and think that's that's the knowledge I need to know. Uh, I worry that we made them that way. Yes, that, yes. That they yes. went through a system, yes. right? That right. was largely defined by textbooks, right? And a finite well-organized, you know, linear uh, content delivery system, and we, we didn't tell them the truth. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, this is uh, one of the, um, you know, one of the interesting things with the, the medical school faculty, and Stuart, Stuart Feistern's example is with uh, PhD students in, in yeah. neuroscience. Yeah. Uh, when we worked with the uh, medical school faculty, um, mentioned that, you know, your students are here 
as a medical school because they've been very good at answering other people's questions. Yeah. But one of the faculty said is what's the difference between a novice doctor and an experienced effective doctor with 20 years experience and it's really in the questions that they ask right. so so you really it, they kind of can be successful getting to medical school by answering other people's questions but if they're going to be good at their craft good at the art and science of being a doctor they really need to learn how to ask their own questions yeah, I'm going to go back to that student to, to end my bit here. You know, why doesn't every teacher do this, according to this, oh, man. this right. student? Right. And he was just so pumped up. So thanks for right. sharing right. your wisdom. I'm looking forward to continuously reading your stuff. Uh, thanks a lot, Dan. Alan, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.